0: God Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word, we're grateful for the joy we have in your son. We'd ask that you bless our time in your word this morning. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, weekends ago, I came home from something, and on my back porch was Peter Escalante, Nico Zarate. Sam Loftus, who is visiting us this morning, and it's not because, I did not know he was visiting, so this is an illustration uh, that just is going to be a uniquely poignant um, conversation. I think I may have mentioned this in part in light of something else. During this course of the conversation, the whims of me when young, um, came up and the album that Doug and Tom Garfield and Dave Tong and I put out, in 1978, came up as a topic. I said, I had copies still in the shrink wrap, would they like one, ran to the basement, pulled out four albums, vinyl, still in the shrink wrap, and gave them to each. I think some of them tried to sell them on eBay, <laughs> or maybe even listened to them. but. Uh, It's not recommended, but the reason I am mentioning this is it has something to do with the passage this morning, and it's probably, in some sort of subconscious way, the reason I'm in 1 Peter 1 this morning. Some of you who know the album, it was by Mountain Angel Band, that's the name of the band. Uh, Angel Food was the uh, name of the album. So you can see if you can track and figure out where that fits in. First Peter 1 Peter 1. 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What I want to... That's just a wonderful statement, a wonderful introduction. A a nice... um, People who run around looking for Trinitarian passages, a nice Trinitarian passage. Um, However you view uh, that expression of the Godhead, chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, I don't want you to miss the you might say, the instructive nature of it. In its declaration, there's an instructive nature. That what this is all about. Now, I also know the minefield when the the scripture says in a passage, chosen and destined. It's like... Those of you who are with Reformed backgrounds, smile knowingly. Those with freedom of the will backgrounds run around like chickens with their head cut off, wondering how to get around this passage. Rather than somebody say, let that ride, let that sit there. Let that be whatever you want it to be, but you know that what it is, is done, this work that God has done in you. Whatever you think chosen and destined referred to, whatever you think being sanctified by the Spirit actually means, It was to accomplish something and that accomplishment is obedience to Jesus Christ. So what what we're at this morning, because in any pastoral situation, the desire in Ephesians, I believe it talks about those pastors and teachers uh, raised for the equipment of the saints for the maturity of the body we're trying to produce a body of believers who not only testify to the grace that is in us and, and talk to our non-Christian friends about it but live the grace that is in us. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Everything from obeying God through faith in him obeying his speaking of non-Christians That's Lewis. Which has got a great name for saying Lewis. It's like Newman in uh, Seinfeld. Newman. I hope your name works out for something. Because Jesus Christ always works out for great authority in some statement like this, the obedience of Jesus Christ, just like the the swearing people love Jesus Christ because it has that sibilant S's and that T on the end. Jesus Christ. What does it mean? What does this salvation mean to you? When the name Jesus Christ is used... When it becomes the Lord Jesus Christ, or you flip it up and say, Christ Jesus, my Lord, what, are, what does the name mean? You know, certain names register with you emotionally. What is this, in whatever doctrinal persuasion you are of, how you are chosen and destined by the Father and sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to, to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood how is that redounded to happening how is that built into something in your mind that has made you walking through your life when you are dealing with your co-workers or dealing with your professors or dealing with your spouse obeying Jesus Christ now, that's, I'm stressing that not because Peter, in that introduction, wanted you to see that. He's really making a statement about the glory of our salvation. But that general idea that is visible in the introduction is what we see through the rest of this chapter. This is essentially the whole first chapter and three verses of chapter 2. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. I know nothing of Greek. I don't know if they have exclamation points. Probably not. But they were trying to affirm to you or convey to you in the translation. When you say, Blessed be. This Christianity, Paisley's announcement that she became a Christian, these various testimonies of evangelistic circumstances we're in. Your own conversion, if you are a Christian. Is that the phrase? Blessed be. Do you think that? Do you feel that? Is there an exclamation point just that your mind feels you have to put in there? You ever think about that when you're writing something out or typing something about the Lord, if you ever type anything about the Lord? Do you always capitalize Bible? Do you always capitalize God? Do you always capitalize Him when it's referring to Jesus Christ or God? Now, I don't think it's a sin to not capitalize Him. I don't even think my Bible does. But there are exclamation points in your soul that one way or another he come when he comes to your mind the phrase blessed be exclamation point ought to be some kind of expression I'm not young anymore Nor do I like the young. Which is most of you. I was realizing that during the hymns. I was looking out going, none of the old people have shown up yet. Well, the McGarry's were here, and I think Paul, and that was it. Everybody else was young. I had never wanted this ministry. But I know that young people have different ways of doing things, different they now have, because they're retarded, they have machines like a small internal combustion engine They carry around in their hand and they claim to be doing something akin to smoking. Vaping, I believe. It looks like a carburetor. You know you can just light a piece of organic material and get the same better effect tastes better only thing you need is manliness just saying and you can roll the packs up in your sleeve so things are different I realize that smoking is different I believe eating is different I believe that people actually claim to like kale they tell me that somehow they feel better without gluten in their diet. Whatever, they, whatever they're up to. God bless you. It's going to be different. But the phrase, blessed be, and the exclamation point, is just a title that I want you to look for something in your thinking about your salvation that will prove to you you think this about your salvation. You heard me tell the story about that feminist uh, evangelical pastorette that came and talked to me that one time about how in, uh, later on in Peter, when Peter talks about as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, and she said, well, I think that's archaic. I asked her what she did with the passage. She said, it's archaic. I said, great, fine, not a problem. What is a non-archaic phrase you use to honor your husband? Because the point was not that it was archaic, the point is that you never say phrases like glory be, or blessed be, the idea is how does a modern like you, having met the Lord Jesus Christ, register in your expression the greatness that is your salvation? By his great mercy we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, comma, who by God's power are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter, when he chooses to write a long sentence about it, Certain kinds of words start tumbling into the sentence: undefiled, imperishable, living hope, great mercy, unfading. How do you think about it? If I handed out index cards, to everybody, and a pen or maybe a, or a pencil, and you say, "Tell me what you think about your salvation." Just one sentence. What do you think about it? It's good. It's fine. What what do what do you think? Have you measured the greatness of your salvation? Because it's important that you do so. It's not just that the Bible writers, because they knew they were going to be published later, and they were going to have to sound inspired And then when people read it during scripture reading, it would have to sound ennobled. It's because they believed that Jesus Christ's salvation, for them, was this point of rejoicing. When you thought, blessed be, verse 6, for in this you rejoice. For in this you rejoice. Now, it is not just... (coughs) A bunch of free citizens of America in one of the least threatened places in the globe. Nice temperate climate, four seasons, three months each. No natural disasters, no really big animals that are hunting us. No major diseases. Really earthquakes, very rare, very, very rare. No tornadoes. Almost a libertarian mentality in this state. If someone showed up, oh, let me check. Let me, let me just check. Anybody carry it? We're cool with it, but if you are. Anybody brought a gun to church? Because it could happen. It's Idaho. And you'd be pleased with yourself if you had just happened. Oh, yeah, i got some Right here, Pastor. And the ladies of one. And it's not because you live in a town where it's pretty cheap to live I was talking to Davis this week uh, my son who has to work in Manhattan and he's wishing there was some place he could not be there and be here somehow cost of living people are nice even the ungodly nice town decent public schools Nice private schools don't cost 30000 a year for your kindergartner. We're not rejoicing in that we get to get together in this nice charming old 1800s church with a staple, with kind of our, our good friends and fellowship in the Lord, and, and everything's good about that, this kind of rejoicing, this kind of salvation is not a measure of those extraneous goods that you may have collected because of America, and handguns, and costs of living, and good friends who share your interest in the outdoors, and other young moms who all have babies at the same time. That's not what makes Christianity wonderful, because listen to this, in this you rejoice, Though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer various trials. We rejoice in this even if we had to live in Massachusetts. Even if there were gun laws that kept you from owning anything. Even if nobody understood what you were interested in. And as a matter of fact, you've just been fired from some from Target, because you didn't escort the local transgendered individual into the ladies' room. Whatever you didn't do because you were a Christian, whatever it was, and you're getting hammered for it, and your business is crushed, and everything is taken away from you, and, and Child Protective Services is looking at you sideways, saying, we may take your kids because we can, because we don't like Christians, And your way of raising the kids is so intolerant and hateful. In this you rejoice. Because it's true. Not because it's turning out. Not because everything is working out for you and and your friends like you. It's great when the positives exist. Now why is it great when the negatives exist? Because it says so that, verse 7, the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The genuineness of your faith may redound to the praise, glory, and honor. This is an inventory moment for you, hopefully. The genuineness of what you claim to believe is true when things are going well. I'm not saying because you all live in a kind of a blessed state of affluent America and nobody's hunting you, that you can't actually believe, but it's harder to test your belief. You know that when you've gone through a hard time and you know that when you've stood back and rested in Jesus Christ, you knew that it was measuring you. You're measuring the real claim you had. People who immediately shake their fist at heaven. There is no God. Why did Aunt Ethel die? Why did so and so suffer? I can't believe in a God that would do this. You're just an idiot. But you're not a believer. You're an idiot and not a believer. The genuineness of your faith needs to walk through the various trials. And that has a redounding effect to the praise of God. And it lets you know that, no, this is not, these are the people, the saints up in Bithynia, Cappadocia, if you if you know where, I should have a permanent map of Greece and Asia Minor up here, but uh, nothing looks like Asia Minor. Okay, picture Asia Minor in your head. Galatia central northern, Cappadocia is uh, eastern, central, Asia Minor, You're all the way up to the Black Sea, basically. Bithynia, Pontus, they're on the Black Sea. Asia is on the west coast of Asia Minor, where Ephesus is. These are not people who knew Jesus, these are people who believed through the ministry of the apostles and others because it says in verse 8 without having seen him you love him though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy as you go back over this passage and I hope you do this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible it sort of surprised me that I hadn't been in it in many years for a sermon take inventory of yourself each time because he's, he's not just talking in superlatives because apostles should. When your genuineness of your faith has been tested, and you find that you really believe, and you believe without having seen him, and someone saying, "Where is your God now, O oh man?" you can just smile and go, "I believe, not having seen. I love not having seen. And the reaction I have to that belief and that love is unutterable, an exalted joy which he doesn't have and you do. Unutterable means that you, because you're not a poet, you can't really express it that well. But it's an exalted state. You know the sense of exaltation. You've felt it, probably from things a lot less than this. Things just going really well. And finding this in God, finding this faith, finding this claim that you have made, whatever you conceive of, being chosen and destined and sanctified in the Holy Spirit, and what the obedience to Christ is, this has happened in you. And you can't imagine how wonderful it is as the outcome of your faith you obtain the salvation of your souls. So it's a matter of some importance whether the genuineness of your faith, when tested, comes through. Because if the outcome is the salvation of your soul, and that, that's, that's almost tragic that we use that passage, that verse. I mean, it's almost too too direct. As the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. And, and in a church like this with pews and hymnals and a jacket and a pulpit and stuff, being saved. I mean, does the ver- what does the word even mean to you? When you think of the salvation of your soul, I got saved. I think didn't Dylan have an album called Saved? It was so It was so strongly, aggressively used, you finally had to stop and go, oh yeah, we are saved. What do you think of saved? Is it, uh, because if it's genuine, you're saved. Most of us and many of us have been trained to think, because of the Christians we know and the churches we've attended, that to be saved is to be, have everything in your life that is enjoyable at all taken away from you. That yes, you wanted to go to heaven, and to go to heaven, nothing could be fun. Nothing could be enjoyable. Because all the enjoyable things, frankly, are sinful. And salvation is the person who used to be the life of the party, went through some buzzkill graduate course, and out they came, a Christian. But that's not how Christianity is being defined here. This is many years before any of these terms have gotten their own cachet in Christian culture. There's not going to be a Christian culture for hundreds of years after this. You were all talking after 2,000 years of Christians doing it badly, thinking poorly about it, not obeying Jesus Christ. And so the people that were in the first century... Encouraging us to think a certain way because of the greatness of this salvation, when they said saved, they meant saved. The prophets, listen to this the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired about this salvation. This salvation intrigued the prophets who knew they were suggesting a salvation, but didn't know a whole lot about it. We might be in many ways like the prophets because we haven't stopped to think about the greatness of our salvation. They knew it was a great salvation and they were asking questions. They inquired what person or time was indicated by the spirit of Christ within them when predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things which have now been announced to you by those who preach the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. That's where the album title came from. The cover art on the album was an angel floating reading a Bible. Things into which angels long to look. Do you realize that's the thing you've been given a look at? That's the thing that is being preached when somebody says to you, Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. Was buried according to the scriptures. Was raised, appeared to many, and ascended to glory. And if you believe in his sacrifice for your sins, he will forgive you, give you a new life in his Holy Spirit, and take you to glory in eternal life. That's what we mean. That's the good news that was preached to you. And we can't write a new gospel that will be more thrilling. We have to revisit the gospel that we all believed that we didn't believe in a way that recognized the thrill. When we don't see, remember angels, when it says angels longing to look, angels, I don't know why that's the case, but it just says it. But angels wish they could see Maybe because they're not in the same state of sin, generally speaking, other than a few. Um, A third of them. They're able to sin, but they don't have the same relationship to the brokenness that is is man. A, a, A salvation. God in Christ became man. He didn't become angel. He became man to die and to save man. We don't, we don't understand what we're looking at. And when the preaching of the good news happens, something happens to the person that is listening to it and us preaching it. And when that distinction between, oh my gosh, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard, because if that is true, that the God of heaven and earth became a man so he could die, to save those men who had insulted him by their lives if they would just repent and believe because he is that merciful if that's true you have a hard time viewing that as buzzkill, but we still do, we hear the story not as true because we're not receiving it with faith or the person you're talking to is not receiving it with faith they're not actually believing it because if you believed it what did it say back earlier? You'd rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. Now, so what's the problem? What's going on? Where, what, what's the holdup? Are we just not telling the story well enough? You know, our preaching isn't really good. Eh, we'll take some corrections there. We have, we have something maybe you've recently I've, I've mentioned as, as a I'm kind of big on story these days, that everybody's up to this, I'm talking to friends like Greg about it, and everybody's writing a story. Everybody thinks they can write. Really, nobody can. And since everybody else is writing a story with the same characters, everybody else is ruining your story, because even your mom can't say the right thing or your friends don't make you look cool and somehow you didn't end up the hero but you're all doing it and that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of God for all of his sinful man and all of history is an interruption because you got plans for the story you're writing and you're, if you're not a complete waste of human flesh It won't really look like a wish fulfillment fantasy, but that's what you're doing. It might be more plausible. You might actually go to grad school to get the job so you can get the girl. So your life could be huge and you could win. What are the terms? I made a comment here. You get someone's going to pay you more than you're worth and there will be a cruise with an open buffet with shrimp the size of baseball mitts. Because that's what your adolescent mind thinks is a story. You actually think there are grown people who think going on a cruise is the culmination of a life well spent. That's, that's it. This is what is replacing there's nothing, nothing immoral about a cruise or shrimp the size of a baseball mitt, but the fact that we just stack up our little lusts and write a little story where the cutest girl in the class really likes us And everybody stands around and lobs great straight lines at us so we can sound witty. Or we get paid more than we deserve. We have really stupid plot devices. And it never works. Nobody ever stands at the the side of the grave going, Wow, that just turned great. Man, what a ride! Turned out just like I anticipated what Jesus is ready to tell you, what the gospel is, which tells you actually you're not the hero, you're part of the villain side of things. And God's judgment of you is going to address that. This salvation that Christ has provided is too good for people who think their story is good enough. Or that Jesus would interrupt their story. When I uh, I pray better not do that. I about to abuse Tolkien again. Part of my doctrine. You have to abuse Tolkien once a quarter. Now why do you say well you better tell us what's up. Well I don't think Tolkien was that great a writer he didn't like really convincing a lot of everything had a history but nothing seemed to have any reality, everybody was two dimensional hobbits were just despicable and there uh, was no religion was no everything was dirty but nothing was diseased you know, you no know, plague running through middle earth, which there would have been that dirty, that much lichen, that much moss growing and everything People like those stories because they could make fanciful realities that they would rather live in. And Tolkien was good enough to create a pretty complex world, a great history of that world. That's admirable. But he spent time working on that and he never got to live that world. It was just for fictional characters. Because the one we write for ourselves will never be that involved and you won't be able to do it. But you'll have childish, childish thoughts. And if God's salvation isn't believed because you're up to your own story and all the thrills you have planned for you, that salvation is too good for you. There's a glory in this message that has an effect. Therefore, verse 13, this is what goes back to what I was saying in the introduction, that it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. What this has happened, what is being done in the gospel in you, and how you think of it, and how its genuineness and its message and its declaration affects you. It pushes you for obedience to Jesus Christ. Therefore, since this is true, says verse 13, gird up your minds, be sober, set your hope fully upon the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Since this is true, this is the kind of life, that's a tidy little thing, girding up your minds, that means all the loose ends of your thoughts ought to be gathered up. Because, frankly, some of us are a little lazy about how we think. Pick it up. Know where truth comes from. Understand what you just claimed is untenable. Make it tenable. Change your mind. Fix what you think. Be sober. That means... That means... You have control of your life. It is not chaos. It is not passion. It's order. That's what sober means. Set your hope fully upon the grace. God has a story for you in which you are given grace and a hope that that grace, when it comes to you in its final end, the end of the world or the end of your life, your hopes ought to have been there. How many times have you found yourself just hoping that you'll get a good transcript out of this college thing or you'll get a decent job that pays you at least over 30000 or something. What are your hopes? Set your hope fully. This is the kind of response our recognition of being chosen and destined by God the Father, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's held up in the gospel that we believe, the salvation we came to. This is what it's supposed to provide for you. Of course I would gird up my mind. Of course I would be sober. If you can't say, of course I would be sober, you might have the wrong view of Christianity. When it says, as obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Because that's how your story that you were writing was being written. All by the passions that adolescent minds and adolescent storytelling laid out for you. No matter how old you got. A do middle-aged men run off with pretty secretaries. Because they're adolescent storytellers. Why do people who should know better get strung out on drugs? Because they're adolescent storytellers. Passions of your former ignorance, meaning you didn't know. Ignorant. That's the way we were before. We didn't know. And so we lived by passion because you couldn't live by reason. You couldn't live by a girded up mind. So, as obedient children. I was thinking about that, I highlighted here. Remember that circle, we're all adults here, right? Ever run into that moment where you suddenly realize, my parents God bless them. What a sensible bunch of people. What a blessed situation I was given. What was I yelling about so much? Obedient children, whatever they happen, as obedient children, people, what does the, do the obedient child do? They're not standing there with, a, with their hands over their rear ends so they won't get spanked. Because that's the only thing that they have: absolute servility, fear of being, you know, pummeled, and so they do everything. Is that that kind of tyrannical obedience? Just as obedient children, kids that realized who their family was and how good it was, and that all of their claims, their screaming, their kicking, their throwing of a tantrum—when I threw that tantrum, in 1969. The last time, I was so embarrassed. It was over a haircut. You've all heard the story. Threw a tantrum, cried. Last time I've lost my temper, and last time I cried, 1969. I don't know the month, but it wasn't snowing. Embarrassed me so much, I realized what a complete tool I was. That my parents were blessed people, I didn't know who to blame. I just wanted to yell and scream and kick the wall. But you know when it is to become an obedient child, when you begin to realize that those who are writing the story for you ought to be let to write the story for you. And God is writing the story that he wants you to follow. But as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you invoke as father him who judges, each one impartially according to his deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You know you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of times for your sake. You realize that this story has other effects. You don't just clasp your pudgy hands together and run around and giggle how wonderful is the Lord's salvation, because it just cost his son crucified for your disobedience. And the judgment that was destined for you has been removed. God decided who was your biggest threat. Satan wasn't your threat. Sin wasn't the threat. God was the threat. And he was going to destroy you eternally. And because of Christ's death, precious gift given, you were ransomed. So conduct yourselves with fear. And that's what's wonderful about this emotion. When you look at an adult story, basically, when you look at God's revelation to you, that angels have longed to look into, you see a terrifying prospect with salvation. It is the most sublime thing you can imagine. You are threatened and secured by the same agent. And so when you realize your faith is genuine and the security he gives you is genuine, you have this heightened, exalted sense of joy. Through him, you have confidence in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, For a sincere love of the brethren, love one another earnestly from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. That word is the good news which was preached to you. That lasting thing everything else everything else we construct yeah you gotta do it you gotta have a job you gotta go go do something with your time you gotta marry somebody but the message that was preached to you of Christ and the salvation that was in him that allows you to gird up your minds be sober and set your hope fully on God is the good news that Jesus Christ died for you so what are you told to do? Don't work so much on writing your own story. Read the Lord's story. What does he want you to do? What has he told you to feel? What has he told you to, how to react? How does he define you as a character? You know when you're writing your own story and your friends don't even help you establish your character? And the angels won't even look at your stuff? I've written some and I know that awkward feeling of trying to force one of your stories like I'm going to do this summer on people oh it's just tragic you know that fishing And you know what it's like to receive a manuscript from somebody yeah I'll read it do I have to tell you anything our friends don't even like what we write let alone angels this is the greatest story ever told because angels like stories that have gods and demons something a little more lifted up did you notice that about Tolkien there aren't any religions in Middle Earth nobody goes to church nobody goes to a temple where are the gods when Christ writes a story there are gods there are demons fear and death mercy and glory Good story. Consider it. But even then, when it's the greatest thing ever, it's the most common, basic godliness. So put away all malice and all guile and insincerity and envy and all slander. That's the character that God wants out of you in this story. And it deserves you fulfilling that role because he's a much better writer than you. Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, for you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So that's the inventory. Have you tasted the kindness of the Lord? Do you know how to describe this thing? It's certainly not a story you're writing. You did not invent this religious thing for you to get involved in, in the midst of your life. Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago. Recognize what good it is and how glorious it is. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Your mercy, the glory of your salvation set us free from our adolescent replacements. Give us the exaltation that we find in such a joy.